the support for this industry that we've been able to find and to calculate is looking at about $20 million over the past five years, whereas the landed value of the hunt over the past five years is only about $9 million. So we're looking at over twice as much in government support trying to keep the hunt alive. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bears. The East Coast seal hunt has started in Canada, and with it, a fierce public relations campaign from two sides, those who support the seal hunt and those who oppose it. While the facts are available, there are groups and individuals who pass on misinformation and disinformation regarding the hunt from both camps. That's why when I want answers, I turn to my good friend and Canadian seal hunt expert, Cheryl Fink of the International Fund for Animal Welfare, or IFA. Using publicly available government documents, citing sources, and speaking plainly, Cheryl provides a fact-based look at the inherently inhumane hunt and helps Canadians and an international audience of animal lovers understand what's happening in the East Coast seal hunt. Cheryl joined Defender Radio to discuss the seal hunt dismiss some disinformation, and address myths surrounding the commercial seal hunt. Let's start with seals. As you've probably heard, the commercial seal hunt on the East Coast opened up last week on April 9th. So the that, that commercial seal hunt, let's start there. Because when we talk about this, there are so many things that come into play that become misinformation and disinformation. And I get confused trying to follow along. So specifically, that seal hunt, that's the one that you're working on. That's the one that most Canadians are aware of. But what is that one specifically? Well, I mean, it's what it's what we refer to as the East Coast Atlantic, whatever you want to call it, commercial seal hunt, which is typically the commercial hunt for harp seals. So it's primarily harp seals. There's a quota of 400,000 animals. Um that's been the quote for the past few years. And I think where a lot of people get confused is there's also a hunt in Canada's north, which is conducted primarily by Inuit people, which is a hunt for seals as a source of food with some commercial trade in the pelts as sort of a secondary industry. So that's not the hunt we're talking about here. We're talking about the one on the East Coast, which targets harp seals. It targets the newborn the pups as soon as they finish molting and nursing from their mothers so these are pups at about uh three weeks to three months of age um and yeah as you say this is the one that the campaigns have been focused on for almost 50 years now um and it's, it's a very different sort of activity than the inuit hunt for seals in the north and when we talk about the seals that are being hunted you said harp seals there are multiple species um that are out there so why harp seals and what are the other seals? Could you sort of just talk a bit about what separates the harp seals and why they're the ones focused on and what these other seals are? So traditionally, uh, harp seals all migrate southward uh, at the same time every year, and they all congregate in the same areas in the Gulf of St. Lawrence and off the coast of Newfoundland. And this is where they give birth to their pups, usually same week every year. All of these animals will haul out on the ice and give birth to their pups. So back in the day when the sealers were hunting for blubber, they had this nice congregated, concentrated, you know, supply of fat seal pups ready to be to be clubbed uh, for their blubber. So it, that's sort of the reason that the harp seal was the main species targeted. And today they're they're targeted primarily for their fur, also a little bit for their oil. But 
And it's the same reason that it's very easy to access uh, high concentrations of seal pups in a, a short period of time. And when we're talking about the other species that are there, they're like the harp seals, not the only one hunted. True. There's uh, also a quota for hooded seals. I think, gosh, I think it's about 4,000. It's the very few hooded seals have been taken in recent years. Traditionally, though, they were also hunted for their, their blubber. Again, a sort of an ice breeding species that would haul out at the same time of year to give birth to their pups. And then there's also the gray seals, which are more often found further south off the coasts of Nova Scotia. Um, and they give birth earlier in the season. So those pups are born in February. Um, in some years, there has been a smaller gray seal hunt uh, for gray seal pups in February. But again, in recent years, very few gray seals have been killed because, as we know, for, for all spe- seal species, um, but particularly gray seals, there just aren't commercial markets for their skins or the meat or anything. And that's one of the big things that comes up when we talk about this is the idea that this is an essential economic part of the East Coast's uh, economy, uh, that without hunting these seals, the economy will flounder, uh, pun not intended. And <laughs> that's not entirely true, is it? That's a complete myth, actually. And I mean, we've been looking at some of the numbers just in the recent in recent years. Um, for the past five years, the the support for this industry that we've been able to to find and to calculate is looking at about $20 million over the past five years, whereas the landed value of the hunt over the past five years is only about 9 million. So we're looking at, you know, over twice as much in government support trying to keep the hunt alive than what it's actually bringing in to sealers or bringing into the local economy. So economically, this is an industry that doesn't make sense at all. And I think people are starting to recognize that. And I think our politicians are starting to recognize that. Um, this hunt just isn't economically profitable. I was listening to a podcast this morning with the sealers complaining. This year, the prices are about $30 for a top quality seal skin that's uh, coming in. And that's sort of what we've been seeing in recent years is $25, $30. And at that price, it's just not viable for someone to go out and hunt seals. Um, so we, what we're seeing is fishermen, you know, switching over to the crab fishery as soon as that fishery opens because it's much more lucrative and they can make more money than they can killing seals. It is surprising to me that we're, we are effectively spending $11 million in tax money to keep this industry going. Yeah. And so it's, it's $20 million they invest, $9 million is earned. What if they took the $20 million and invested it other ways? I mean, is this the only industry available to these people? Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Like, is there nothing else uh, in the area? No, I mean, I mean, all almost all commercial sealers are professional fishermen. So and so, I mean, the seal industry or the seal hunt was sort of the first "quote unquote" fishery to open once because it it can still be done while the ice is still in the area. But they they all move on to other fisheries for the rest of the year. It's um, no one makes their living simply from sealing. It's usually over in two or three weeks, you know, maybe a month, but. Eventually, the ice breaks up, the seals start their migration north, northward, and they're out of range. So, as I said, it's a very short-term sort of activity. It's very concentrated. It's a competitive, they call it a competitive fishery, because basically the sealers are trying to get as many animals as they can before the ice breaks up and the seals sort of migrate off, or before, in some years, they're trying to get it before the quota is reached. Fortunately, we haven't seen anywhere close to the quota being taken in recent years. But it wasn't so long ago that we were reaching the quota and exceeding it, and, you know, the government would have to... Sh- shut down the hunt after a couple of days because hundreds of thousands of seals had been killed in just two days. So it's, it's competitive. And I think 
that's why we see so many problems with it is we're not seeing the attention given. You know, we're seeing a lot of lip service to animal welfare and humane killing, but we're not seeing this actually happening in practice on the ice because it is competitive. It's about profit over anything else. And that's one of the interesting things we see. There are articles just in my brief research um, to sort of catch up on what the topics are in this subject right now. There is another call, and I know this is not new, for the harp seal population to be culled or changed because of the northern cod stocks. Um, and this is something I know you have spoken about in the past. So the connection between seal populations and fisheries, and then we need to get rid of all the seals so there are more fish. And I is it is there clear evidence saying that the increased seal population has an adverse effect on the fish? And or is there evidence to show that if we culled, so I think the quote is around 400,000 for last year's or this year's, it was last year's was 400,000. If we got rid of all 400,000 seals in that quota, would that have drastically changed the fisheries? What we, there actually is clear evidence is that seals are not uh, preventing, seals are not responsible for decline in cod stocks. Um either through direct predation on cod or through competition for other species such as capelin. And that's something we're seeing more of, I think, almost every year. There's a new paper coming out from scientists within DFO and, and elsewhere that are sort of exonerating harp seals when it comes to anything to do with the fisheries. It's it's pretty clear that the culprit is human man, or, you know, our mismanagement of the fisheries, our inability to close fisheries and keep them closed until there's scientific evidence that they should be opened because there's just so much pressure to, to to respond to industry and to you know protect jobs and there's always that demand to take more and more fish and as you say the the call from fishermen to cull seals or any predators really seals whales seabirds it's for anything seals seem to get the brunt of it but um, because they consume fish and of course they consume fish but there's also this misconception that you know removing predators means that all of the all of the fish that those predators would eat will somehow become available for the industry and be, you know, they will miraculously mm -hmm. be scooped up by fishermen's nets, which we know is not the case either. There's all kinds of complicated interactions that happen. And if you remove all the predators, it's not going to mean, you know, great fishery seals for fishermen. You know, something else is going to collapse and go drastically wrong. Yeah. And that's, that's what we hear when we have conversations about uh, wolves and livestock or wolves and moose here in Ontario. I know you're familiar with that one. Yeah. Uh, and the obvious answer would be to stop hunting moose for a year. Um, yeah. But that never, ever, ever, ever happens. Yeah, they may change the numbers, but like if you, if you want more moose to hunt in five years, that means for five years, you don't get to hunt any. Uh, and it's an interesting way of like, we know that when we talk about these population dynamics, we must look long term. And at the same time, say, well, this year I didn't get as many moose or I did not get as many fish or I did not have as many, you know, uh, uh, pounds of beef on my farm. Uh, yeah. Therefore, I have to do this for next year. And it, it doesn't work that way. So it's very confusing, I think, when we get into the media of it. And that is one of the things that comes up in the media a lot is, and I'll, I'll reference the film Angry and Nook, and I do recommend people see it. It's a very well-made film, um, although they do sort of cherry pick some of the comments from you in it and don't give you actual opportunity to speak, but it, it does provide insight into a lifestyle, uh, into a, a society, I should say. Uh, and one of the things that 
comes through. And this is what happens in the media frequently. And I've seen some reporters who I think have a little more history with this or a little more clear in it, uh, is the difference between the East Coast commercial seal hunt and that northern seal hunt. Um, is there a way to discuss this so that it's clear? Uh, you know, are there major problems in the media with that representation of conflating the two? I think, I mean, it, sh it should be something that we should discuss. And it, I agree. If you, if you watch Angry Nook and you see the type of hunting that happens there and the way it's described, and you compare that to what happens on the East Coast, it is entirely different. I mean, uh, you know, she talks about uh, a sealer going out and maybe coming home with six animals at the end of several days hunt. And it's a completely different picture from what you would see on the East Coast where a boat would come out, go out and come home with 1,500 seals after one day of hunting. So the, the scale of it is just so much different. And, you know, I think and anyone who watches that is going to see, see that there are two types of activities. But I think you're right in the media. And we see it a lot, I think, sort of in the reporting about, especially where, you know, seal meat is being served in restaurants and big mm -hmm. cities and where this is concerned. I think it's sort of generating this misperception that, by eating seal meat or by wearing seal fur that a person is somehow supporting Inuit livelihoods or Inuit economy when really these, by and large, and you can tell by looking at the pelt if it's a harp seal or a ringed seal, a ringed seal has a little, it's, it's a different pattern, it's an open circle, but most of these pelts and seal meat that's being served is coming from the East Coast commercial hunt. It's not coming from the North. It's not helping Inuit or Indigenous peoples in any way, um, but it's, I think, there's certain individuals and companies that are profiting off of that misperception right now. Speaking of the sale of seal meat and so on, that's something that we have covered in the past, you and I, and seen that the government has invested significant amounts of money to come up with various ways to try and take seal products to market for the East. And again, it's always specific to the East Coast hunt. Um, it's not for the Inuit hunt that we were talking about. And this is where they were talking about frozen seal burger patties and um, uh, what was it? It was a crushed seal penis extract to sell to Asian countries, all That's kinds true. of stuff. And they spent millions on this. And the, the problem is that there isn't a market. So let's talk about the markets internationally. We know in Canada, there are people who want to help. And I think you, you definitely have have spoken to this saying that, you know, you want to support Inuit people and even you want to support the folks on the East Coast. They're hardworking people who deserve to put a meal on the table for their families. Um, the question then becomes whether or not the government is paying them to do that twice over um, rather than providing other education and opportunities, but we'll get into semantics forever there. So internationally there are there's one giant market that's been shut off for a while and there's some other news coming up so let's talk about the eu first what is the status there uh well the the european union banned seal products in 2009 after a very long a very lengthy analysis um canada and norway challenged that ban at the world trade organization and lost so the european ban is still in place um it seems to be very very stable and as far as we're aware, it's, it's going to stay in place. I think, I think we're fairly confident that it's going to stay in place despite ongoing efforts by the industry and by Canada to have it overturned. So that's, that's one I think that we can, we can count on. The, the part of that too that I wanted to touch on, and I know this is true in some fur related, uh, documentation that I've gone over 
is there a clause related to First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people? Oh, absolutely. There's an exemption for mm-hmm. indigenous harvested or hunted skins. So, so the closure of the EU market to the commercial seal trade um, does not include skins hunted by Inuit or indigenous people. They yeah. can still be they can still be sold in the European Union. They can still be imported. They can still be traded. Um, nothing that doesn't that shouldn't affect them at all. And that's, I think, one of those little details that gets left out in some of the media reports. Um, it's true, and I think actually every trade ban has. I know Taiwan has one, um, but they, they most of them have exemptions for indigenous seal products. Mm-hmm. Uh, and lately, we've been hearing about India, and it's it is both very exciting to see another country ban seal products, but in terms of what it actually means for individual numbers, let's say, so for the market as a whole. Uh, it may not be initially as it seems. So we are celebrating the India ban, but what does it actually mean for SEALs and for the industry? Um, I mean, it's a great step in the right direction. It's just another country that is rejecting you know, SEAL products based on the fact that they, they are hunted inhumanely and they're not necessary. So I think it's terrific. In terms of, you know, was India a major importer of SEAL products? I, I don't think so. They never showed up in our export statistics that I've seen. So I don't think in terms of the actual numbers or value that it's had a huge impact. But I think in terms of another country in the going in the right direction and we're seeing these continuing bans on, on sale products, I think it's time that we need to start realizing this industry is, you know, between the international bans on products and what's happening with climate change, this isn't an industry that's going to have a huge potential for growth in the future. And our government really needs to start thinking about how much money they're going to keep sinking into it. Um, when it hasn't shown any return on investment over the past tw- 25, 20 years since the subsidy started back in 96. So, I mean, at some point, I, I, I firmly believe at some point our politicians are going to say, look, enough is enough. We can't keep putting money into this. One of the things I hear about, or I shouldn't say I hear about, I see online is people who support the hunts for whatever reason, whether they are hunters, they aren't hunters, they know someone, they think that it should be allowed, um, uh, the commercial hunt, of course. They say that it's not true that baby seals are clubbed over the head. And in the days of Facebook, information gets spread and misinformation gets spread at the same speed. So if we are talking about how the animals are hunted, without going into too much graphic detail... Are babies hit over the head or are they not? Or is it somewhere in between when we talk about the truth? I mean, sure, they're being hit on the head. They're being hit on the body. They're being. So I think, you know, what comes down to is there are legally prescribed methods for killing a seal set out in the marine mammal regulations. It can be done with a rifle or a wooden bat or club or a spiked club, which is called a hack pick. So all of those are legal. All of them continue to be used. Uh, the hack a pick is, I guess, what most people refer to as you know, clubbing over the head. We see it more. It, it depends on the ice conditions. You see the hack a pick used more often in the Gulf of St. Lawrence um, when there's been solid ice conditions because a sealer can sort of walk on the ice and get closer to the animal. We see the hack a pick used on the front, but usually or often, I guess, seals are shot first from the boat. And then a secondary skiff will go around with sealers with a hack a pick and they will go and, you know, finish the animal off, so to speak. Um, with, with the club. But yes, the, it, we still club animals. And in terms of, you know, people will nagle over what's a baby seal, what's not a baby seal. I mean, the animals that are being killed are two to three weeks old. 
start in until they're about three months old. And considering this is an animal that doesn't start to sexually reproduce until they're five or six years of age and can live up to 25 or 30 years of age, I think, you know, it's fair enough to still call that animal a, a baby seal. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, you know, but people, people have this idea that a baby seal is a white coat. So it's only a baby for the first two weeks of life. Well, you know, we're not hunting the white coats anymore, but we're giving them one extra week, which in the grand scheme of things, isn't that much of a difference. Um, basically they wait until they start to molt their white fur and then they're fair game for the hunters. So it's the difference between a three week seal pup and a two week seal pup. Uh, the other one that I hear is that the whole animal is used, Cheryl. Um, and I have seen the videos, uh, and I've seen the pictures, but, uh, again, without graphic detail, um, is the whole animal used most of the time, all the time, at all? And I think this is one of the really important distinctions between the Inuit hunt in the north and the East Coast commercial seal hunt is the Inuit do use the whole animal. They, they eat the meat. They use every part of the animal. On the East Coast, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, the most recent data that we've been able to get from Fishery and Ocean suggests that some 92% of the meat is being wasted or left on the ice. Um, I know one of, one of the two main processors this year says they're not processing meat at all. So there's, as you, as you said earlier, there's not really a market for the meat. There's some domestic local consumption for seal meat in Newfoundland. And I, I imagine that will always be there, but this isn't something that, um, most people have developed a taste for, you know, aside from we're seeing it sold in Toronto, Montreal is a sort of a, uh, I'm not going to say a gourmet. What's the word I'm looking for? So it's uh, like, it's, it's a trend. It's, it's a, it's a novelty. It's a yeah, novelty, that's food, it. right? It's like going to the X and eating the deep fried butter stick chocolate bar <laughs> stuff, right? Like people just eat it so they can say they ate it or so they can post it on Instagram. It's not something that's, um, most Canadians would eat on a regular basis. It's kind of like kale. Kale is delicious. Uh, no, we're okay. We're not going to do that right <laughs> now. We'll go. We'll, we'll have that argument later. Um, okay. And then the pineapple on pizza argument, right? I don't really know why people get so aggressive about that. I mean, kale though is like lettuce or spinach that has no flavor and a weird texture. So I think like that's a pretty clear line in the sand. But anyway, um, okay. moving on because we're professionals. I know. I was not going to talk about massaging the kale because that would just be weird. <laughs> it really, it makes it more delicious. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. We'll, we'll we'll do a special bonus episode on Cheryl's tips for eating kale that isn't for disgusting. massaging for massaging the kale. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when we're talking about the size of the economics of this, and I know we already went over some of the economics, but again, to me, we really need to drill this point home. Government has spent roughly twenty million in an industry that brings in around nine million, so we're operating at a loss, tax dollar wise. Uh, how many people are actually involved relatively, maybe not just directly, but with a fair bit of sort of easy connection uh, for ancillary uh, uh, industries. Right. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, we have some figures on the number of active sealers. That's sort of the only number that we have handy. And it's, it's declined dramatically in the past four or five years. Uh, let me just take a look here. So last year, we're looking at you know, 500, 600 sealers in the past three or four years. So, you know, and that can compare that to 2006 where there were over 5,000 uh, active sealers in Newfoundland. So a pretty huge decline in the number of 
individuals going out and taking part in the seal hunt. Well, and that works out to about $40,000 of government money per sealer. So, yes, if you're doing the math, I did work it out somewhere and I think it works out to, I think, $59 a seal. Yeah. Something like that. $57. So, so yeah, so we're paying $57 for every seal that's being killed. Which has a market value of around $30. Yeah. Yep. It's disingenuous. It's it's throwing money at something uh, and hoping that it will just get better when there is no evidence that it will, or that outside of the relatively small community of uh, sealers, people want it to get better. Yeah, and I, again, I have to believe after twenty years that even in Ottawa, I need to start to be clearing in that this is not this is not <laughs> a long term proposition that's going to win for anyone. Yeah, you know that money can be better spent in the communities. That can money can be better spent helping people. There's no, you know, as we went over, there's no scientific reason we don't need to reduce seal populations for any ecological purpose. That's just that's an excuse, okay? So you know, if we if we want to put money into these communities and to help people, there's other ways of doing it than paying them to go out and kill seals. We've discussed that there is no real scientific evidence that this is necessary or that it will help the ancillary. Uh, 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 economies such as fishing, uh, we've shown that the government has been spending copious amounts of money for negative returns and that the actual number of people interested in this both internally and externally has declined rapidly. But we're still doing it. So what's the best way for people to get involved if they want to say, hey, I want this to stop. I don't want my tax dollars going to this. I want new opportunities provided for people, um, new industries to be invested in. How do they go about doing that? I think the best way is still to contact your member of parliament. Let them know how, how you feel about the hunt. Let them know how you feel about your tax dollars being used. And just get in touch and make people aware that this is still an issue that Canadians are concerned about. I think that's, that's still going to be the best way. And, and, and not buying seal products too. And I think there's, um, sorry, not to keep talking. <laughs> Um, you know, there is this idea now that, that consuming seal products is helping Inuit, and that's not the case. And I think we need to make, you know, if if you're seeing someone wearing seal fur or something, like, ask them, do you know where that came from and who do you think is actually benefiting from it? And people are going to be surprised to find that it's not an Inuit hunter who's benefiting. It's actually a large, very wealthy Norwegian company who's getting most of the profits coming from the East Coast seal hunt. So uh, I think it, we need to do some education and reshaping people's uh knowledge of the seal hunt and where the money's actually going. To learn more about Cheryl and IFA's work on the commercial seal hunts in Canada, visit IFA, that's I-F-A-W dot org. That's it for now, folks. Thanks again for all you do for the animals. And remember to support this show and help keep it going at patreon.com slash Defender Radio. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.